0: Romans chapter 15, we're looking at verse 8. Certain quotes somehow make it into our common experience. Even if you've never heard of the Blues Brothers, you probably know that they claim to be on a mission for God. Missions for God are on Paul's mind and heart as he gets close to the end of the book of Romans. In fact, at one point here tonight, (laughs) it looks like he's going to end Romans, and then he keeps going. But in our verses here, verses 8 through 12... He's going to discuss Jesus as a missionary to the Jews. And then in verses 9 through 21, he's going to discuss Paul himself as a missionary to the Gentiles. Verse 8 Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. The circumcision refers to the Jews, it was just another way of uh, talking about uh, the Jews because of their rite of circumcision. Jesus was sent, first of all, to minister to the Jews that through Israel all the world might hear the truth of God, what we call the gospel, as promised the fathers, the Jewish patriarchs. And so a lot of uh, Jewish history is summarized in that statement, Jesus the promised and prophesied Messiah who would come to Israel fulfilling all the promises that God made uh, to the patriarchs, uh, and uh, Israel would be a blessing to the nations of the world. When Jesus sent out his disciples on their first evangelistic mission, he ordered them, this is Matthew 10, 5, and 6, don't go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, And uh, so if you have a historical perspective on what's going on with Jesus, that doesn't seem strange to you. Uh, We understand that the gospel was for the Jew first, and after that, the rest of the world. Not that he was ignoring Gentiles. He did minister to a few of them, more than a few. And we know that Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, and there was a notable uh, experience there in her village getting the gospel and many getting saved. His major mission, however, was to Israel in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus came to his own people. They rejected him. This did not in any way thwart God's plan of offering salvation to the Jews first. <laughs> Somebody keeps sending me a picture of hot dogs being grilled. And I just, <laughs> not what I had in mind. But anyway. Uh, so God's plan of offering salvation to the Jews first and then through the Jews to the Gentiles. After his <laughs> resurrection. Jesus commanded his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and begin their ministry there. The period covered by Acts chapters 1 through 7, characterized by a ministry only to Jews and those who converted to Judaism. It wasn't until chapter 8 that the gospel went beyond the Jews to the Samaritans. Chapter 10 goes out to the Gentiles. The rest of Acts largely involves the ministry of Paul taking the gospel to whosoever will, to Jew and Gentile. And so the Old Testament often spoke of the blessing of the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Paul quotes four such passages in rapid succession now in verses 9 through 12. He says, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this reason, I will confess to, uh, to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. And so four quick uh, quotes from the Old Testament. Now, uh, commentators see a progression in these verses, comparing them to New Testament history. Romans 15.9, it's a quote from Psalm 18, verse 49, which speaks of the Jews glorifying God among the Gentiles. And so this would uh, describe the ministry of Paul as he witnessed among the Gentiles. Romans 15.10 quotes Deuteronomy 32.43. It speaks of the Gentiles rejoicing with the Jews, and this would speak of the decision of the early church to give the Gentiles equal standing with the Jews. Romans fifteen eleven quotes Psalm 117, verse 1. It speaks of Jews and Gentiles together praising God. This, commentators think, describes the age in which we live now in which Jews and Gentiles uh, have no distinction really between them in terms of worshiping together. And in Romans 15, 12, quotes Isaiah 11, verse 10, speaks of Jesus reigning over Jews and Gentiles. This looks forward beyond our own time to the future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth at uh, his second coming. And so, an uh, interesting collection of verses that Paul strings together there to talk about the ministry Uh, of the gospel, to Gentiles, Jew and Gentile alike. The wall of partition, he says in other places, has come down and uh, we worship together as one in Christ. And so God has had and he still has a solid plan for missions, for reaching out. The believing Jews at Rome, they were having a hard time reconciling the salvation of multitudes of Gentiles with God's eternal promise to Israel. It wasn't that they were necessarily... Uh, prejudiced or that they hated Gentiles uh, or that they didn't believe Gentiles could be saved. It was more of a biblical problem. I, I'm sure there was some of that, some of, you know, there's, there are prejudices and bitternesses and all, but we're talking about believing Jews, uh, Jews that had converted to Christ. And so uh, we don't want to accuse them of having these terrible motives. It was more of how, what is God doing? We, we've understood our whole lives you know, Judaism and, and the law of Moses and, the, and getting saved in that way and all, and, and now we understand the grace of God has come in Jesus Christ, that he is, in fact, the Messiah. But it, it's really difficult for them to see this whole plan for the Gentiles. Now, in the Old Testament, lots of talk about Gentiles getting saved, but remember the church of Jesus Christ is a mystery revealed in the New Testament. You won't find the church in the Old Testament. It's not there. Because Paul said it's a mystery uh, that is revealed in the New Testament. And the idea of the church... Jew and Gentile worshiping uh, side by side with no wall of partition between them, spiritually speaking. Uh, And so, the, the, the Jewish Christian was having a hard time understanding this, and Paul is laboring to show them that not only does God talk about reaching Gentiles, but we're in a whole new phase of ministry. Verse 13, "'Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing.'" that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The mention of hope in the quote from Isaiah brought a prayer to Paul's heart. This is one of those points at which I think he's getting done with the book. Ever, I, I try not to say finally, because then people shut their Bibles. That, that's, that's a kind of a code word in Christians. So finally, or one last thing. Well, If you're, you know, 10 minutes into your study, that's not the last thing. That's the last thing of this first point of the second point of the third point, you know, that kind of a thing. So you have to be careful not to – you don't want to give people false hope that the study's almost over. Oh, we laugh at that because you guys, you want it to go longer, I know, because you're hungry for the word. But, you know, so Paul, he does that frequently. He says says finally a lot, or we translate the word, and he's got like two chapters left, you know. But uh, he mentions hope, and then it gets him into this kind of a, a benediction. The God of the Bible is the God of hope. What is hope? Hope is the absolute expectation of all the good that God has promised. It means that what God has said, I have hope in. Not that I hope it's going to happen, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but that I have hope in the certainty of what God has promised. It is an absolute expectation of all that God has promised. And as that, in the, with that definition, it can only come to the Christian. No one else can really have any hope in a certain sense, other than a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. So when I share something, let's take a funeral situation. You know, if I'm at a funeral or officiating at a funeral, and I talk about the resurrection from the dead of this individual who was a believer in Jesus Christ, I have an absolutely certain hope because I believe in the God of hope. Now, everybody else who gets up and does a eulogy who's not a Christian and says, he's gone on to a better place, than I, doing what he loves, he's golfing in the sky with Jesus. You know, the, that's hopeful, but, and that's the kind of hope the world has. It's not based on anything but superstition and uh, emotion and things like that. And so our God is the God of hope. And, and what he has said is going to come to pass in my life will, in fact, come to pass. And you and I have a certainty. And I, I want to belabor that a little bit because I think we normally use hope in a very different sense. You know, uh, somebody will say something, well, I hope so. You know, I, I, hope, I hope my package gets here before, you know, Father's Day. Uh, you know, my gift that that I got and all that. And I hope it gets there on time. We indicated in the sense of maybe it will, maybe it won't. And that's how the world uses it. And so when the Bible uses the word hope, it's a whole different thing. It's a certainty. Now, having hope, that's how you're filled with all joy and peace in believing in Jesus Christ. I said you can because it's a matter of faith. But if you walk in faith, having hope, knowing the God of hope, your hope will abound all the more by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Christian life, by definition, is the victorious life. It's the life in which God has spoken to our hearts and told us in broad strokes and in some specific ways exactly what's going on in the world around us, why it's going on in the world around us, and then more specifically, he's promised you and I some very specific things. Uh, Maybe not the kind of specifics we want, who... Who am I going to marry? How many children am I going to have? What job do you want me to have? I mean, God will guide you and lead you in all of those things. But, I mean, God's made some pretty big uh, eternal promises to you. I mean, I think it's a big deal to know every day that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that if my loved ones die, they go immediately to be with Jesus Christ where I will enjoy a reunion with them. Uh, I mean, those are, so there's some big things that God has promised us and, and given us hope for that no one else can have, and and I'm jealous of those things. Sometimes I get offended when people at a funeral get up and they they, they spurt out this stuff. Yeah, you you can't say that. That's not what's happening at all. You have no basis to believe. Uh, you know, one of the things that gets me is a lot of times if you, The other things you hear, if you go to a lot of funerals, a lot of th- one of the other things you hear is. That person died doing what they wanted to do. And, and people, I mean, they're sincere. I'm not, I'm not getting down on people who say, they died doing what they wanted. Well, yeah, no, not if they're not Christians. They didn't die, do, because now they're suffering, and, and they know, they're like the rich man in Lazarus, and the rich man who says, man, if I had known this, and now that I do, would you go tell my family? so that they don't have to come here. So, yeah, I mean, so these people are trying to steal the hope that belongs to the God of hope and to us that that have real hope, and that's why we need to be bold when we share the gospel. Verse 14. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now, since no one is good but God, goodness refers to the grace of God given to the Jews The Jewish brethren in Rome, having themselves received God's amazing grace, they could certainly extend it towards others, especially Gentiles. If grace is God's unmerited favor, then it must be unmerited for everyone, regardless of ethnicity, otherwise it would be merited. And so this is kind of interesting. If you're a Jew, you're thinking, oh, yeah, grace. I received Christ by grace. It wasn't because I was a Jew. It came to me first, that was the plan, but I didn't merit it. And so I can't, if God is bringing the gospel to Gentiles in a unique way, then that's grace as well. And it says they're filled with all knowledge. This refers to spiritual knowledge, to the things of God. It can't mean even then that they knew everything about God or that they had every doctrine down just right. It means they had a knowledge of the gospel, of its power to save, and therefore should understand its whosoever will capacity. And so regardless how hard it might be for an Orthodox Jew who'd become a Christian to think that a pagan Gentile idolater could get saved without first or subsequently converting to Judaism, if they considered that salvation was all of grace and that the message was universal in its scope, that by itself should be enough to set aside any prejudices you and i we just don't we have a really hard time understanding some of these arguments because we didn't grow up in judaism making sacrifices and approaching god in that sacrificial system and then all of a sudden it seems just by the snap of a finger i get saved as an orthodox jew within Judaism, and then some pagan idolater who's eaten meat sacrificed to idols on Saturday gets saved on Sunday and is a full privileged Christian just like me? How did that happen? And so this is a struggle for these people, and Paul is saying it happened by grace, the same way it happened to you. And, and you, you know, that's why Peter, when the early church was arguing about these things, he says, hey, we need to get saved the same way Gentiles get saved, he didn't say oh, Gentiles get saved the same way we get saved. No, he put, he put them in the lead position. He says, yeah, they are getting saved, and so Jews need to get saved as well. And so it's very interesting, this kind of mindset, because, um, you know, we have to enter into the thinking of the first century Jew. Tra- uh, Paul trusted they would hear him, hear his teaching in this letter, and admonish one another. In other words, they would adopt the things he was saying about the Gentiles and then hold each other accountable. He held Peter accountable at one time. He talks about it in the book of Galatians. Peter had come, and uh, Peter, of course, the one whom God gave a vision to about how the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles, and you could eat anything you want. You could eat pig and bacon, you know, bacon-wrapped this and bacon-wrapped that. Baking like crazy all of a sudden, you know? And so, but then Peter, he gets with some of these Judaizing teachers, and he starts to withdraw from the Gentiles and get back into his Judaism, and so Paul rebukes him publicly. And that's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. He says, hey, now, you guys, you need to hold each other accountable, and when you see people doing weird stuff, you need to go talk to them. The application to us would be in many different areas where, if since we love each other, we need to, you know, hold each other accountable and say, hey, you know... Was that you I saw the other night going into Huggies? You, I didn't see any tracks in your hands, so what were you doing down there? You know, If you're going to go into Huggies and minister the gospel, that's great, but you know, if you're going to come out of Huggies stumbling, i got problems you know, and stuff, and so we want to hold each other accountable. Verse 15, is there still a Huggies? Is Huggies still there? Some of you are going, diapers? What do diapers have to do with this? <laughs> Huggies is a bar somewhere in Hanford. I hope you don't know that, tell you the truth. <laughs> Pastor Gene, how do you know that? I don't know. But I'm going to hold my phone now again. To uh, I need the comforting feeling of my iPhone. <laughs> Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, and it's reminding you, because the grace of God given to me, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering... Of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul had been more bold in writing to them on some points. For example, you remember he spent three whole chapters 9, 10, and 11 talking about the past, present, and prophetic future of the nation of Israel. And so he really was bold talking to these Jews about their Jewishness and the place of the Jew in God's plan. The offering of the Gentiles is a curious phrase. The Jew would hear offering and think of the sacrificial system of the law of Moses. The Gentiles, however, were not making any such offerings. Instead, Paul indicated they were the offerings, perhaps in the sense he had described earlier in Romans as living sacrifices wholly acceptable to God. And so the Jew who's all stuck in this sacrificial system and sees the Gentile not being involved, Paul says, don't worry about them not bringing an offering of a lamb or a goat or a turtle dove or whatever. Their life is their offering. They are living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, just like you. They're sanctified by the Holy Spirit in that he both indwelt them and was daily leading them toward maturity. Therefore, I have reason, verse seventeen, to glory in Jesus Christ and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make Gentiles obedient. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was a definite calling from the Lord, giving him cause to give glory before God. In other words, he wasn't a he didn't apologize at all for bringing the gospel to Gentiles. He was. Happy to do it because the Lord sent him there. Whatever he did among them in messenger and ministering, Christ had done it through him. And it was Jesus Christ's will that Gentiles become obedient. Now, saying that they were made obedient means that although they were pagan idolaters, God didn't leave them that way. They turned to God from idols. That's a great phrase in the book of Thessalonians. Paul, when he's describing what happened in that Gentile church when he was there for three weeks ministering the gospel, he said, you guys turned to God, and when you turned to God, you turned away from your idolatry. And so Paul is emphasizing that God didn't leave the Gentiles as pagan idolaters. They turned to him and away from that. They weren't lawless, but they didn't keep outwardly the law of Moses. So the Jew was saying... I'd, be, I'd, I'd have a better feeling about this if the Gentile also kept part of the law of Moses like we do. Even if it's not necessary, if they would do it, I'd feel better. And Paul was saying, no, no, don't put that on them. They are keeping a law. They are a sacrifice, but it's different. They're a living sacrifice and they're keeping the law of love. Verse 19, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and roundabout about to Ilir, uh, I can never pronounce this, Illyricum. Illir, what do you think? Pretty good? I've got it on my phone. I've got a pronunciation thing, but it take too long. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Signs and wonders followed the preaching of the word of God. It often pleased God, and it often pleases him today to verify and validate his word by signs and wonders. With or without them, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. And so uh, we believe in signs and wonders. We believe that they follow the teaching of the Word of God. We also believe that God is uh, the one who is in control of those things, and so we don't seek after them. Uh, we simply preach the gospel. One thing I'll say about these guys, these New Testament guys like Paul, he went to preach the gospel, and then whatever happened, happened. He, he didn't go to to have healing ministries. He didn't open up schools of ministry to teach how to do signs and wonders, he, he and these guys, they just went out and they preached the gospel, and then God determined how he was going to validate their ministry, and in, in many cases, he did it with amazing signs and wonders, uh, and so our responsibility is to do what? Go out and preach the gospel and be open to what God wants to do, but not... Uh, what usually happens every few years is a a wave goes through the church where the church, you and I, we get rebuked because we're holding back God's signs and wonders and then they come in and they teach you how to do these signs and wonders and so then you have these fake signs and wonders going on for a while uh, so that people can say, see, God's doing a work and stuff and all the while it's just, we're not against it, God wants to heal somebody Who am I to stand in the way? God wants to do something miraculous. That's fantastic. But our job is to just bring the gospel, bring the word of God, and uh, let God loose on people. Uh, Paul said he had fully preached from Jerusalem to this other place. This other place, Illyricum, uh, corresponds to the former Eastern European country of Yugoslavia. Uh, And so here's a clue to missions, by the way. What Paul had done was preach the gospel, establish churches, and then moved on. His idea of fully preaching the gospel involved establishing churches whose members would multiply his work by continuing to reach their communities with the gospel after his departure. And so the local church is a big part of world evangelism. And so it follows that church planting ought to be a high priority. Verse 20, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named lest I should build on another man's foundation but as it is written to whom he was not announced they shall see and those who have not heard shall understand Paul's personal philosophy of ministry was to pioneer new work he saw himself and others as builders laying a foundation of Jesus Christ upon which churches were built to modernize what he was saying we might say that Jesus is the general contractor and that he appoints others as subs to do the building. Now, if you're having a house built, you don't need two electrical contractors or two cabinet makers. You don't need two of any of the subcontractors at all. You only need the one general contractor and whoever he has assigned to do your cabinets or to run your wiring or to put your roof on, that kind of thing. I think it's an excellent and extremely biblical philosophy of ministry to not build on another man's foundation. Now, notice it's interesting. Paul is not shy of calling this another man's foundation. You and I read that. I mean, if I said that, you'd say, well, wait a minute, Gene. It's Jesus. There's no man involved. But this is Paul saying this. He says, it's another man's foundation. The foundation itself is the Lord. That's what you build. That's what you throw out there, the gospel. Paul says... It reminds us, men and women are the ones who do the work of the ministry. It's a man that God sends out to do this work. And so you don't want to build on another man's foundation. There's plenty of work to be pioneered, plenty of pioneering work. Instead, we want to establish work where a work is already going on. And you know, do you know why? Because it's easy, because it's easy. We sometimes do this in communities where good churches are already ministering the word of God. And sometimes people do it within a church where they decide they're going to raise up some ministry that's on their heart that uh, they want to do. There's a huge emphasis being put upon church planning right now in Christian circles. And that's great as long as you are planting and not splitting and transplanting, which is what happens a lot, where people just say, hey, let's look at an area and they pick an area, and you think, my goodness, there's at least 15 good churches that I could go to in that city if I had to. You know, if I, I'd rather go to a Calvary Chapel, but, um, oh, wait a minute, there's already a Calvary Chapel. Well, gee whiz, it's big enough for several, so we'll start another one. And all the while, there are still places where people could really use a, a decent church. And so my personal philosophy is, if there's some church you can go to that is close to what you'd like to hear, then go to that church. There's no church that's going to be perfect, right? You understand that. It pains me to say that. Our church would be perfect if you weren't here, but uh, no, I'm just just kidding. I know what you're thinking. It'd be perfect if you weren't. no. but um, people make church imperfect. And so, but a lot of times, if you think of that, and I don't want to get into, you know, specifics, but a lot of times I hear people are planting a new church and I think, really? That's like next door to three decent churches. Maybe their worship is a little bit different. They approach the word a little bit, but they're good churches that you could live with. And I thought, you know, how is that, how is that really not building on another man's foundation? Uh, go somewhere else where they really do need uh, a church. In cities and towns that already have Bible-teaching churches, you need to have a compelling reason to start another one. If you're going to be very similar to another church, join with that other church. Make it stronger rather than taking away from it. Too much of church planting is really just about personalities. It's about a person or a group wanting their own identity rather than being content to serve within a structure that God has raised up. And so um, we want to look beyond what is already established to those who haven't really heard the gospel. Uh, and, and, and that can apply to certain areas, but uh, you know, there's places in the United States that could use a, a good Calvary chapel, and, and there's no doubt about that. When I first came, I've told this story before, and I'll truncate it because we're getting over time, but when I came here, They had to convince. First of all, I didn't want to come here. Nothing personal, but I wasn't. I was just on a trip visiting a friend of mine over in Visalia, and all of a sudden, everybody thought that I might be the pastor of Calvary Hanford. You know, and and um, I spent my whole time trying to convince everybody that they should just go to another church in Hanford, and they convinced me that at that time there wasn't there really wasn't anything like Calvary Chapel. Not that we're the best church. I think we are. Uh, but there are other good churches, but if, you, if they looked at the landscape, there were churches that were pretty Pentecostal and not emphasizing the word, and then there were churches that were emphasizing the word, but they were pretty dry and not emphasizing the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, and really, this was an area that could use a Calvary Chapel-type ministry, whether it was Calvary or another church that does that. Um, it, it felt there was a need for it in this area. And... Um, so, you know, I at least became convinced in that initial trip that uh, there was a real need. Uh, and so, you know, there needs to be a real need uh, in, in in these different communities. Uh, there, it doesn't do us any good to just plant churches all over the place um, when most of the world hasn't heard the gospel. I mean, there are plenty of places you can go if you want to be used and, and pioneer a work. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're into. So... Um, Meantime, all of us, missionaries to our own community, right? Missionaries where we're planted and uh, uh, build there, work there. Let the Lord use you there. Amen.